Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. I am so happy today to uh, have a very special guest aboard. I want to introduce you to uh, Paul Angles. And Paul, as I'm introducing you, I'm happy to have you here for a a number of different reasons. But one of the reasons I'm grateful that we have a chance to pick your ample brain today is because I'm getting asked by a lot of people, what can I do? And these are people at various stages of, of awakening wokefulness, if you will, you know, who recognize there is something going on around us. They can't quite put their finger on it, but we are clearly drifting away from the principles and the practices upon which this nation was founded. And they're asking, what can I do? And as I as I look at you and your website, um, which I I will uh, have a link to this in the in the show notes, that's constitutionstudy.com. It's very clear to me, Paul Engels, you have asked yourself this question and answered it because you are taking action. Tell us about who you are. Tell us about what you do. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, so I am not your average constitutional scholar. Uh, I'm not a, a law professor. I did not go to law school. I actually spent 30 years working in IT. Uh, I also spent a little over 20 years in different forms of you know Bible studies and, and teaching, preaching in those types of areas. So I have a lot of experience in that teaching and preaching, which came along, it came to be useful a bit later. But I started out as a product of the public school system. And like most people I met when it came to the Constitution, I was ignorant and apathetic. I did not know. I did not care. I thought it was just for lawyers and judges. And yeah, I knew about rights, but it didn't really mean anything to me. And that's because history had been taught to me as names and places and dates and basically bored me to death. Uh, one day I encountered a gentleman by the name of David Barton, and he did something no one else had ever done. He talked about our history and the founding of this country in a way that was exciting, that was engaging. It was about stories and, and people, and it, it got me interested. I started listening to his podcast, and I, I, I started showing interest as to what was going on. And then I, he, he quoted one of our founding fathers, a gentleman by the name of John Jay, uh, a man I had never heard of before, even though uh, he helped negotiate and sign the Treaty of Paris at the end of the Revolutionary War. Uh, he debated the Constitution. He wrote several of the Federalist Papers. He was the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, but I'd never really heard about him before. And he has this wonderful quote uh, that goes, it's incumbent on every member of the state to read and study the Constitution of his country and to teach the rising generation to be free. By knowing their rights, they will sooner perceive when they are violated and be the better prepared to defend and assert them. And I thought, that's, that's interesting. I, I, that's a good idea. I ought to read the Constitution, because I never had. I went to school in this country, and I never read the Constitution, and I actually read it. And what happened when I read it, the, the way my mind works, 
I realized how little of what the Constitution actually says had I actually been taught. I, I joke, I learned more about the Constitution from Schoolhouse Rock, an old Saturday morning cartoon. Here, here. Than well, I I'm right with you. Than I did in, you know. Yeah. In, in fact, to this day, I, I have a hard time reciting the preamble without putting the tune to it, because <laughs> that's the first I've heard. But I started reading, and as I'm under, as I'm getting a glimpse of what's going on here, I realized, well, I didn't know that, and I didn't. That, why wasn't I taught that? And that kind of got me interested, and I read the Constitution and the Declaration of Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, and I started. You know, I, I I I became a little better educated than I had been before, and then I I came across another podcast episode, and this talked about uh, a, a survey done annually by the First Amendment Foundation, and every year they ask this question of a thousand people. They have a survey, and one of the questions they've asked for year after year after year is, "Can you name the five freedoms protected by the First Amendment?" Now, of course, my first reaction was to try and name them, and I got three. But what got me was their survey found that in 2013, 36% of the people they surveyed could not name a single freedom protected by the First Amendment. Wow. Exactly. Now, why this is interesting, I was actually driving home from a Bible study. I'd been at a friend's house when I heard this statistic, and I was floored. And then an odd idea popped into my head. Why don't we study the Constitution the way my friends and I had just studied the Bible? Why, why don't we, we sit and read what it says and discuss it and debate it and, and try to understand it, rather than simply handing it to a bunch of quote-unquote experts to tell us what it means? Now, this is a strange idea, and being a relatively intelligent man, I did what any relatively intelligent man at that point should do. I talked to my wife. My wife looked at me going, okay, uh, it doesn't sound like a bad idea, but I really don't have a clue what you're talking about. So I talked to several of my friends, and they said the same thing except for one. One convinced me to go, to go down to the local public library. I lived in a very small town in upstate New York at the time. And say, we want to put on a Constitution study, and we want to do it here. And we did. And it was... Since I'm leading and organizing it, I had to kind of know what I was talking about. So I took the time to read and to study, and as I started doing that and I started helping other people do that, I began to realize what was worse than how little about the Constitution most Americans know, and that is how much we've been taught, either through school or through society, that just isn't true. It's false. Paul, let me, let me ask you let me ask you a quick clarifying question because um, look, I, I grew up in a home with parents who respected the Constitution, who taught me that you should be grateful that you live in a free country, and, and like you, it was actually David Barton and wall builders that kind of ignited the the flame in my heart that uh, when I made the connection that hey, liberty isn't just a great idea; it is actually one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given His children. And very few people in the history of mankind have conducted themselves to to where they can actually keep it for any length of time. But something that, that I, I want to ask you to clarify is when it comes to learning about the Constitution, the purpose behind gaining this knowledge is not to create cheerleaders 
for the Constitution. Um, tell me what the deeper purpose is behind knowing and understanding the principles and practices that, that went into creating that document. Well, the, the best way to understand what they were trying to do, what our founding fathers were trying to do, is to actually study the preamble. Uh, the preamble, it, it's at one time in this country, every elementary school child memorized, so they, would, were forced, they were required to recite the preamble of the Constitution. Now, I don't think that's done anymore, at least I certainly don't remember doing it, but uh, it's a great description of what was going on. So hopefully you remember the words, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Okay, so I could recite it. But think about what's being said. We, we the people, you see, we, there, there's this interesting uh, uh, tension in this country between different spheres of influence. And it's understood that we, the people, are the true sovereigns of this nation. We hold authority. Uh, there's a quote that's attributed to Thomas Jefferson, though I, have, I haven't found any proof for it yet, that says, when the people fear the government, there is tyranny. When the government fears the people, there is liberty. And we are in that situation where the people fear the government, but it was designed so that the government would fear the people. We, the people of the United States, they wanted to form a more perfect union. We had a union. After we declared independence, they had the Articles of Confederation that had problems. They ended up creating a new document called the Constitution for the very point of making the union that was started in 1776 and making it better. But then we get to some very interesting points. So what are they trying to do? Establish justice. Not social justice, not economic justice, not racial justice, just plain justice. So everybody gets what, what is their due, everyone's right to protect it. They wanted to ensure domestic tranquility. They didn't want the states fighting amongst themselves. They wanted a way for them to live together. They wanted a way for them to defend themselves. There would be a common defense uh, due to you know invasion or anything like that. Hold that thought, Paul. We, we are coming up against our break here. Paul Engels is my guest. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the work that he is doing, a book that he has just published, and how you can access what he's doing to become better informed yourself in understanding and knowing and applying the Constitution. Paul Engels is my guest. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. And we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. My guest is Paul Engel. And, Paul, let's, let's finish up the story that you were sharing with us about how we got the Constitution, and then let's talk about what you are doing to help people better understand this remarkable document. Sure, Brian. So as you're talking about the preamble, the last part is the part that, that hits me the hardest. So one of the reasons our founding fathers created this document, created this country, was to, their, to quote them, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And it, it, as I was studying this, it, it dawned on me that our liberty is an inheritance. And the country that we inherited, that my generation inherited from our parents, 
was freer than the one we are leaving to our children. I, I had a daughter, one day I hope to have grandchildren, and I realized that this, this blessing of liberty is being eroded so that what I'm giving away is less than what I have. What that led me to do, in addition to studying the Constitution more, is how can I share this information? How can I, how can I help others see? So as I mentioned, I have a website, constitutionstudy.com, and I started writing articles and doing a podcast and, and doing videos where I, sometimes I'm taking something from the news and saying, well, let's look at this from a constitutional standpoint. Frequently what I do is I'll answer questions, uh, whether it's presented in one of my – I get from, from social media. I am on Facebook and YouTube. Um, or sometimes it's actually the website, but there's a lot of questions. There are a lot of people that, are, that they want things explained in a way they, they can understand. They don't want the legal ease. They don't want the judicial jargon. They want it in plain, simple English. So that's what I try to do. I have the website. I do webinars. I do speaking events where we're trying to take and, and educate the populace. In fact, my, my goal is actually educate the electorate. You see, we've lost this idea that the government works for us, not the other way around, that, that we hire people to represent us in Washington, D.C., and in our state houses. And since we don't recognize that, we don't think of them as hirelings, and we don't understand how to, to vet them and hold them accountable. And that's a large part of what ended up to me writing the book is the book goes through the entire Constitution in, in plain, simple English, um, the Constitution, by the way, is not written in what we would refer to as old English. It's very simple to read. It only takes about 20, 25 minutes to read. But I go through and I've done the research. I've, I've, I've looked up words that we may use differently than they did before. I, I research what Founding Fathers said so that when you, when you have a question or you're, you're reading, someone you know, uh, mentions a certain clause from the Constitution, you can go and read what it actually says and read some of the history about it and, and read what our founding fathers meant so that when you can look at it and say, oh, now I understand it, now I can apply it. And a lot of what I do on the website now is, is give examples of how to apply what's in the Constitution to our everyday lives. How do, what is our role as citizens and participants in a free country, in a uh, constitutional republic, what is our role? What is our job? Uh, how do we do that? How do I, how, when someone introduces themselves as a candidate for office, how do I vet them? How do I determine if, if they are qualified for the office? Uh, most people don't realize that every uh, legislative, judicial, and executive officer at the, both the state and federal level are required in their oath of office to support the U.S. Constitution. But very few of us recognize that if we hire them to promise to support the Constitution, we kind of have to know the Constitution ourselves to determine if they're doing a good job or not. Here, here. So that's that's my goal is is, and I, I work, I'm working very hard information available that how do we end up with a, a, a an electorate that understands their role and can apply it? Then when people have ideas, 
whether it's a convention of the states or a balanced budget amendment or, or, or changing the number of members in the House of Representatives, we can look at those things. But what we really need underneath, we need the foundation of a free of a government, uh, a limited government, are a people that understand the different government roles, the different roles in different parts of different governments, and how to keep them accountable, to keep them in the box we set up for them. Because it all comes back to to we the people. You know, we the people said, here's your box that you are required to live in. It's up to we, the people, to keep you in that box. And we've kind of got to this point where we expect someone else to do that job for us, and it takes a, a lot of, of education to kind of return that, that idea our founders have of we, the people, return it to we, the people. That's, that's a lot of the goal of, of what I'm trying to do through all of the work that I'm doing. We've got about three minutes before we hit our break here again. Paul Engel, tell me about the book that you have written, and, and let's get our, our listeners acquainted with, with your work there. Absolutely. So the book is a culmination of about two years worth of research, writing, and the blood, sweat, and tears of trying to get a book published. If anyone's ever gone through that, it's not a simple process. Uh, it it, 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 it's a combination of what I did in my first Constitution study back when I lived up in, in upstate New York and just research, taking the time to read clause by clause, digest it, understand it, and then explain it through a combination of, of stories and analogies and plain, simple English so that pretty much anybody could, you know, who can, can read it. And understand, when someone talks about the supremacy clause, or someone talks about the three-fifths clause, um, or even someone talks about the general welfare clause, they can look at this and say, ah, I, I can put that into context and I can understand it. The Probably the, the most interesting thing when you read the book from beginning to end, which I hope everyone will do, is you start to see how these ideas build on each other and how, you know, when... When um, you know, why is the president not elected by the people, but he's elected by the states? You know why when they talk about you know, all legislative power being vested in Congress, what does that mean when you have judges creating what's called uh, uh, case law or constitutional law? These things start interacting, and you get a much better understanding a of how the country is designed to run. And then how compare that to B, how it actually runs. And then the question comes up, C, which is, well, how do we get back there? One of the most common questions I'm asked is, if the Constitution says this, why do we do that? And a lot of it is, well, it's tradition. It's the way we've been taught. It's time to go back to the original documents and see what, they actually, what the documents actually said, rather than what somebody was taught in law school, which, by the way, law schools... Don't teach the Constitution. <laughs> nope. They teach what judges say about the Constitution. So it's, it's all about going back to the original documents. I use, I, I, I link everything. There's footnotes galore. So every time I'm quoting the Constitution, a founding father, uh, a book, there's a, 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 refer, a, 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 a footnote. So you can go back and you can double-check my work 
and see, you know, am I, you know, blowing smoke? Or is this actually what was being said? Is this actually what this means? Paul, I thought that was a very important point. Paul, we're down to about 30 seconds here. Again, tell us the name of your book. Tell us about your website and where people can find that. So the name of the book is The Constitution Study. Uh, the book is available on the website. It's also will be available March 4th. I'm sorry, May 4th. It will be available on Amazon, hopefully a few others. The website is constitutionstudy.com. Uh, that's where you can interact with me. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can read articles, watch videos. Most importantly, you can ask questions. There's a whole section dedicated to people asking questions. And you can see the webinars that I'm putting on so you can learn more directly as well as through the book. Paul Engels, thank you so much for being my guest. I'll have a link to those sites in the show notes. Trusted Voices of Truth and Insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. By the way, phone lines are open, 801-331-8113. I'm torn sometimes with with what to approach you with in terms of subjects. Because, look, I, I can beat the drum and tell you, hey, our civil liberties are in grave danger right now. Yes, there's a virus out there. Yes, it's scary. And, you know, medical professionals are struggling to contain it. But there's, there's a bigger picture. And, and I don't want to beat this until it's, you know, just a dead horse, you know, that I'm sitting there whacking away at it. But, but we have to consider that the, the lockdown mentality is not the only course of action that was available. It's the one that appeared to be the only course of action to many people in positions of authority. In fact, I'm going to give you an example, and I'm going to name names because I think that uh, you need to understand this is not something that's at the high lofty levels of global government or even national government. The mayor of St. George is actually encouraging citizens, hey, if you're concerned and you don't see that, uh, you know, people are behaving or, or obeying the dictates, you know, to stay at home and, and you know, self-isolate and self uh, um quarantine he says then i suggest you contact the health department and make sure that uh, they know that you want to see more action taken on this at a governmental level and john pike i am so disappointed in you i understand there's a lot of hashtag me too when it comes to you know flexing that that government authority that's not what's needed right now people understand the risks that, that they are taking to go out and gather in groups. People understand how to mitigate those risks and those who really feel threatened. They're staying home already. But I do not like the idea of, of a government leader who, at least I'll give him credit, he's recognizing, hey, I don't have the authority to, to issue some dictate. Other mayors around the country and even here in my home state of Utah should probably recognize that. But to sit there and appeal to health authorities, well, maybe they'll issue something a little stronger, you know, to make sure that people understand you're supposed to just stay home, shut up and do as you're told. What if there were alternatives? Now, I have a great article here in front of me from Frank Hollenbeck. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education, an alternative to the lockdown strategy in the fight against coronavirus. I talked yesterday about how Sweden has actually used a laissez-faire approach. I have another article here in front of me, how Taiwan has used something other than simply lockdown and shutting down its economy to deal with coronavirus. And by the way, it seems to be working. I had one friend who was like, hey, you can't compare Sweden to us. 
well, that'd be like one state. Okay, well, Taiwan's a little bigger than Sweden. If it's working for them, you want to just entertain the idea that maybe there's an alternative? This is what uh, Frank Hollenbeck has to say. He says, the current coronavirus strategy of most governments is a recipe for worldwide economic disaster. In many countries, the strategy of confinement and forcing shops to close is a surefire path to large-scale business failures. And the cascade of economic and financial repercussions to come is likely to lead to another Great Depression. Now, he says Italy, for example, already had a 135 percent debt to GDP ratio before the crisis. So it's hard to imagine how it will be able to borrow more without a commitment from other European countries to be jointly responsible for more Italian debt, something the northern European countries are still strongly opposed to. The ECB is already printing money like crazy, and another Greece-like situation will make it ramp up the printing presses even more. Now, we've been down this path many times before, when the cure is clearly much worse than the the disease. And he calls to mind the German hyperinflation of 1921 to 1923, which created a resentful, impoverished middle class, which ultimately led to Hitler's rise to power. Now, the coronavirus that originated in China is highly contagious. More than 80% of the patients only show mild flu-like symptoms, but for the remaining 20%, mostly elderly or people with pre-existing conditions, the virus can be life-threatening. So to save lives short-term, the entire population in Europe is currently being held under house arrest, and many businesses have been put into a pre-liquidation state by no longer being able to realize a profit due to inactivity. And Mr. Hollenbeck says the current strategy is not to stop the virus in its track, but rather to spread out the contagion so the peak is a level that will be more manageable for the healthcare system. Governments took the biased advice of healthcare professionals without a real weighing of all the pros and cons. But this prolongation in time, however, will come at a steep economic and human cost. And he talks about unemployment here and how unemployment correlates with death. I don't know if you saw the unemployment numbers today, but uh, last week there was 3 million new unemployment claims. This week, 6.6 million. And actually, Ron Paul is saying that number could be closer to 10 million if you wanted to look at the real numbers. What Frank Hollenbeck says is that in the longer term, more lives will be lost if we continue this strategy. How many victims of financial ruin will end their own lives? I'm not exaggerating when I tell you there are people who are on suicide watch right now as I speak because they are so flipped out over what's going on. Hollenbeck says in the modern era, for every 1% increase in the unemployment rate, there has typically been an increase of about 1% in the number of suicides. A study conducted by Brenner in 1979 found that for every 10% increase in the unemployment rate, Mortality increased by 1.2%, cardiovascular disease by 1.7%, cirrhosis of the liver by 1.3%, suicides by 1.7%, arrests by 4%, and reported assaults by 0.8%. By the way, he has links to, to quantify this, so you can look it up for yourself. How many lost lives out of the 300 million in the USA does a 10%, 15%, or 20% unemployment rate represent? Think about that in terms of the numbers they're throwing around. But this many could die from coronavirus. Frank Hollenbeck says the use of the free market gives another strategy to control the spread of the coronavirus. 
For example, we now have strong evidence from trials in France and China that in 75% of the cases, a combination of two extremely well-known anti-malarial drugs, hydroxychloroquine in combination with the antibiotic azithromycin, can bring the viral load down to nearly zero after just six days. Complications usually arrive after the sixth day. So these drugs could make the latent effects of the Wuhan virus as mild for 20% as for the other 80%, and they were recently cleared for use. Now, there are many other possible drug combinations that might offer similar results, but FDA and EMA regulations require testing, require long-term testing, and they make it much more difficult for these drugs to be available in time to treat the virus. Yet the world economy is at stake, and we cannot sit and argue on the quality of the water while our house is burning down. He says an obviously better solution than sinking the world economy into a Great Depression is a greater use of laissez-faire. The current lockdown strategy is a bleak choice of allegedly fewer short-term deaths against a much longer or much larger long-term death toll. We must return to a business-as-normal situation as soon as possible. We need to free drugs from overbearing drug regulations and make them widely available with appropriate dosages and warnings everywhere at a market price without the need for a prescription. We need markets to be free so they can provide a wide choice of medications. Now, he says the argument is not for a non-strategy. It's for allowing the markets to define the strategy rather than government to define the strategy. For example, the elderly might consider taking chloroquine preventively. It has a long history of being taken to prevent malaria in Africa. It's naive to think that people can't inform themselves and take appropriate actions for their own health benefits. And he says it's also naive to think that businesses and people won't adapt to the perceived threat. Restaurants can seat patrons several meters apart. Waiters and cooks can wear masks and gloves. There's an infinite number of innovative ways people will adjust. Just because we can't imagine a voluntary market solution does not mean one doesn't exist. South Korea is an example to emulate. Instead of an authoritarian locking down of its, of its people, it took a much more libertarian approach to the problem, and it's already showing promising results. Now, he says this market-oriented strategy is obviously not without risks. Nothing is. But we must move away from the current defensive 16th century bunker mentality and consider less disastrous, less disastrous economic alternatives. Again, this is from Frank Hollenbeck, who's a financial consultant who worked for the State Department as a senior economist. I don't know if it's the right answer. Okay, I'm not telling you, hey, Frank Hollenbeck says it, but you ought to hang your hat on it. You, I'm just saying, there are alternatives. But the problem with the people in power and the people in authority at every level of government, right down to your little small town mayors, still feels like, well, we've got to seize control somehow. And so they use the language of control, and they use the mechanisms of control. Laws, rules, ordinances, police, fines, jail, arrest. That's how they want to force through their solutions. They don't trust freedom. They don't trust the markets. They don't trust that there could be some alternative that doesn't involve forcing people to do what they think is the right thing. We've got to break out of that. If we don't... The virus is going to be the least of our worries for several generations to come. Man, it feels good to get that off my chest and to share that with you. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. This is Loving Liberty. When we come back, I'll open up the phone lines. 801-331-8113. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is the number. Let's get right to the telephone. Dean, thanks for holding on, and welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering, you know, this might be a little bit off the subject of this uh, virus, but maybe not. Um, could this be just something as simple as like a plague, like in the uh, biblical days? What I'm getting at, I run across something in, in some uh, religious encyclopedias. Um, the word carrot, K-A-R-E-T, mm-hmm. comes from uh, Encyclopedia Judica. It means uh, extirpation, a punishment at the hands of heaven, mentioned in the Bible, the penalty for a considerable number of sins committed deliberately, such as idolatry, desecration of Sabbath, the eating of bread on Passover, incest and adultery, and some forbidden foods. Now, this goes on to say who this affects. This affects people at the age of 50 by the death, in quotes, death by the hand of heaven. And 60, and at 60, and natural death between 60 and 70. The connection between, it goes on to say these different uh, forms of punishment uh, against these sinners. I just found this kind of interesting how it's affecting the uh, elderly and where it's affecting them and, and who comes up with this. And, uh, as near as I can tell, you know, this might be coming right after the Karaites. These are a sect of Jews that were only going by the written law and not going by <laughs> law. And uh, there was, I guess, quite a division in the, their beliefs. I can guarantee you this, Dean. Uh, you'll never be a popular person for suggesting that perhaps you know this is this is one of the signs of the end times. But yeah, but you know what? It, it very well could be. I'm not a, I'm not a superscriptorian, but uh, I'll tell you there's there's a lot of stuff going on right now that uh, that I, I think definitely should serve as a wake up call for believers and non believers alike. Yes, definitely. You know, need to look at all different angles because I, I don't think this genie can be put back in a bottle with, with shutting everything down. Yeah, and that's that's my concern too. the The economic fallout to me is is a lot more concerning than the possibility that uh, yeah, there's going to be people dying of this disease. We know that people will probably die from it, just like they die from the flu every year, or heart disease, or you know, strokes, or things like that. But the economic fallout is going to hurt a lot of people that it doesn't have to. And that's solely based on this this conscious decision to shut everything down without regards to, to the unintended consequences. That's the shame. Thanks so much for your call. 801-331-8113. Let me, let me see. I don't want to just give you platitudes here, make it sound like, oh, he's blowing sunshine up our skirts here. But there is a, there is a positive side that is coming from this. What was the meme I saw today? Uh, people, what if they realize that? Uh, um, what if they realize that uh, they that having some food storage on hand is actually a good thing, and that um, they don't need government to do everything for them? In fact, they realize that it sometimes just sucks. And I was like, well, that's actually kind of a best case scenario. Maybe people will be more self reliant. Annie Holmquist, writing for IntellectualTakeout.org has a comment about beyond raising chickens, there are some survival techniques you really should give a try. 
And since I know a lot of friends, are, even my wife and I have been talking about, hey, maybe we, uh, maybe we should be talking with some folks about uh, you know, getting some chickens. She says, counting one's chickens before they're hatched is taking on new meaning in the age of coronavirus. Baby chicks are the new toilet paper, the New York Times explained over the weekend. Chicken suppliers have been cleared out as Americans adjust to quarantine and their minds switch to survivalist mode. And she says, I can't say that I blame them. Americans are sadly removed from the land and any form of self-subsistence. Seeking means to support oneself is right and natural in times like these. But she says raising chickens isn't the only way of doing that, nor is it the fastest. And this is what I like. She's got some very practical solutions or suggestions here that maybe we should consider. Gardening is also a viable way of restoring some sense of self-sufficiency to the American population. Now, she says due to troubles with a voracious deer population... She was seriously considering hanging up her gardening gloves for a season. COVID-19 gave her several reasons to change her mind. For starters, gardening is cost-effective. Now, the economy's taking a beating. Many will be tightening their belts to make, make less uh, stretch further. Those who t- practice gardening can extend their food bill, but only if they approach the black gold in the backyard in a wise manner. And here's her point. One of the big mistakes that beginning gardeners make is buying lots of tools and expensive plants. Eagerness is wonderful, but taking a moment to count the cost before jumping in will make the most of your money. So instead of a beautiful raised bed requiring lumber and lots of extra dirt, she says, why not dig up a patch of grass in a sunny area? Do a little research and invest in a bag of fertilizer that will strengthen the soil you already have. When it comes time to select your plants... She says, think short term. Raspberry bushes and rhubarb plants are wonderful, but they actually take years to establish themselves and give produce. Instead, you can just spend a few dollars on seed packets. Even living in Minnesota with a short growing season, she says she has found it possible to plant zucchini, squash, cucumbers, beans, and carrot seeds directly in the ground in late May and still reap a bumper crop by the end of summer. Abandoning cheap, easy plants like these, or rather planting cheap, easy plants like these, is also forward-looking. Winter squash plants produce abundant fruit, which actually stores well in a cool, dry place for a number of months. I think a lot of people may discover the uh, efficacy of a root cellar here in the near future. Fresh garden carrots also store well in the refrigerator for a long time, while zucchini and green beans store well in the freezer. Finally, she says gardening directly contributes to the gardener's health, and she means that both mentally and physically. According to a 2017 meta-analysis, gardening provides a wide range of health outcomes, such as reductions in depression, anxiety, and body mass index. Huh, it's actual work, as well as increases in life satisfaction, quality of life, and sense of community. She says she's already anticipating the cheering nature of the outdoors, the extra exercise, and the cathartic relief that sinking her hands into the soil will bring in this, dist- in this season of social distancing and uncertainty. Now, she says, lest you think I'm encouraging gardening simply because it's a long-time hobby, she says, let me offer some advice from another gardener who was a lot wiser than I was when it came to the tilling of the earth. This is Thomas Jefferson extolling the benefits of gardening in a 1787 letter to George Washington. Here's what Jefferson said, quote, agriculture is our wisest pursuit because it will in the end contribute most to real wealth, good morals and happiness. The moderate and sure income of husbandry begets permanent improvement, quiet life and orderly conduct, both public and private, end quote. 
Now, look, it's no secret. We've moved away from agricultural pursuits in recent generations. Instead, we like the convenience of a postmodern society. Well, things are not that convenient now. In fact, she says things change when that convenience disappears. Is it possible, as Jefferson's words suggest, that this disappearance could be to our benefit, not only in a monetary sense, but in a mental, emotional, and moral sense as well? All right. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Caller, go ahead. You're on the air. Brian, how you doing, buddy? Fantastic. What's on your mind? Uh, well, you know, I want to help my fellow man. So I've been gardening my whole life, and I enjoy it. But the most effective thing I've found to be helpful with the gardening is a greenhouse. They come in all shapes and sizes. And the, you know, bottom line at the end of the game, <coughs> it expands your uh, growing season. Early start. <clears throat> and a late finish. And, uh, I mean, we, we've, we've already started our greenhouse and stuff's popping up all over in there. And it's, it's just an amazing thing. Hey, so, I'm, I'm a big believer. I, I had a greenhouse, uh, actually, before I moved to northern Utah, and I miss <clears throat> it. I miss it so badly. And it's exactly what you're talking about. You can, you can grow stuff year-round if you actually know what you're doing. Yeah, you can. If you want to invest the time and energy into it, you know, with heaters and stuff, I think you can get away with doing it year-round. I, I usually call it, you know, you know, I have stuff in there till late January, you know, and finally, by that time, I'm done with it, you know, and but the stuff stays in there. Your beets can stay in there. Your turnips, you know, the broccoli thrives, tomatoes thrive, peppers thrive, so, you know, if it's uh, any option for you to do it on your property... I think it's it's a very you know good idea, helpful idea because a lot of people struggle with gardening and myself included. Yeah, you got to be able to ventilate it, you know. But we'll get through this. We'll get it. We'll get through it. I I, I know we'll get through this. I, I don't think uh, I don't think it's the end of time. Okay, it's Rob- be a wake up call though for a lot of folks. Oh, here, here. Rob, thanks so much for the call. We've got a breakaway. That is the end of the show. We'll have some great show notes for you posted on lovingliberty.net. You can also catch the podcast, share it with your friends. He's right. Rob is right. We are going to make it through this. We may have to toughen up a bit, but we're going to make it through it. 801-331-8113. 